Today's podcast is sponsored by RadRx, your source for quality online education for interventional and diagnostic radiology coding, taught by subject matter expert Stacy Buck. For more information and testimonials, visit RadRx.com. Struggling to learn interventional radiology coding? If so, RadRx has the perfect solution for you. Cracking the IR Code, Mastering Interventional Radiology and Cardiology Online Training Program. In this program, interventional radiology coding expert Stacy Buck breaks down the complexities of interventional radiology coding in easy-to-understand terms so you can grasp this complex specialty. Through her course, Stacy has assisted many coders with little or no interventional radiology coding experience in successfully passing the CERC exam on the first attempt. For additional information and testimonials, visit radrx.com. Welcome to Who Cares What Stacy Says, a podcast providing insights and advice on how to take your medical coding career to the next level. And now, here's your host, Stacy Buck. Welcome to Who Cares What Stacy Says. I am your host, Stacy Buck. In today's episode, Rosemeen Boppett, president of CodeWrite Healthcare Consulting, and Tony L. Holmes, CEO of Alpha Coding Experts, join me to discuss Dr. Marty McCary's book, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It. The Price We Pay paints a vivid picture of the business of medicine and its elusive money games in need of a serious shakeup. This book is a must read for everyone, but in particular, it is a must read for anyone working in the healthcare industry. In his book, Dr. McCary shines a light on business practices within healthcare that drive up costs for all of us. He takes a deep dive into the many reasons why healthcare costs are so high, and he also showcases individuals who are disrupting the status quo of healthcare delivery. Rosemeen, Tony, and I discuss what we learned from Dr. McCary's book and share insights based on our own personal experiences, both as patients and as healthcare professionals. And now here is part one of my interview with Rosemeen and Tony. Welcome everyone to today's podcast. In this episode, we're going to be doing something a little bit different in kind of doing sort of a book review. This was a book that I read last year and I was completely blown away by all of the information in the book. And it's something that I wanted to discuss for a while in the podcast. And I brought on two guests, special guests to help me discuss this book. The book that we're going to be discussing in the podcast is The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It by Dr. Marty McCary. And a lot of you are probably familiar with Dr. McCary because he is all over the place in the media. He is on just about every news channel doing interviews these days. He's also on Z-Dog MD, his podcast that he does. I know a lot of you out there may listen to Z-Dog. He's one of my favorites. So anyway, today we're going to be discussing Dr. McCary's book. And just to give you an idea of what the book is about, I just want to read a few sentences from the book summary to give you an idea of where we're going in today's discussion. So it says, drawing from on-the-ground stories, his research, and his own experience, The Price We Pay paints a vivid picture of the business of medicine and its elusive money games in need of a serious shakeup. Dr. McCary shows 
how so much of healthcare spending goes to things that have nothing to do with health and reveals what you can do about it. Dr. McCary challenges the medical establishment to remember medicine's noble heritage of caring for people when they are vulnerable. And that is really a great summary of his book. If I had to sum it up myself, if I hadn't written it, I could write that after reading his book. So with that said, I want to introduce my two guests on today's podcast. So I have with me, um, back with me, Tony L. Holmes from Alpha Coding Experts. And I also have Rose Mean Boffett with me. She is on the podcast for the first time. I'm so happy to finally meet her through the podcast. We've been communicating off and on through LinkedIn. So Welcome, ladies, for joining me. And before we start talking about Dr. McCary's book, I just want to take a moment and have each of you introduce yourselves to my audience. So, Rosemean, since you're the new guest, we will start with you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and why you read Dr. McCary's book? Like, what drew you to read that? So, hi, Stacey. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me uh, on your podcast. And I'm um, really honored to be here on this panel with Tony, who I've uh, uh, worked with before on her podcast as well. So thank you for that. Um, about me, my background is uh, I have a degree in marketing. And um, after uh, I, I graduated, I want something more, uh, you know, doing advertising and campaigning and things like that. I, that's what interested me. That's what marketing was all about for me. But then I was uh, being offered sales jobs and I don't like doing sales at all. So I was like, okay, I don't want to do that. So my mother-in-law actually uh, recommended doing billing and coding, which I, I wasn't even like thinking in the healthcare sector or anything like that. Cause I was like, I don't have any interest in that. But um, I took the course and I actually liked it. I enjoyed it and I understood it and it made sense. And I was, I, I was good at it. So then I did the course and then I started, um, working in a cardiology office as a front desk person. So I started in the trenches. I was there doing front desk and, you know, answering patients' calls, making appointments, insurance verification. Then I did billing and then I finally I started coding. And um, since then, you know, it's been different jobs and different roles and different positions. I've done, uh, I, I've also done um, auditing as well. I've done chart reviews, um, risk adjustment coding. I've also done um, uh, practice management, you know, managing people, managing the whole practice. And when you're a practice manager for a small doctor's office, you're wearing several hats. So you're learning a lot of stuff on the fly. And uh, then in 2015, I decided that, you know, I, I just didn't want to like have a routine job. I just wanted to do something on my own. Felt like I was qualified enough to do something on my own. I had some interest from past clients who were looking, you know, for. So they're like, "Can you do that for us?" And I said, "Sure." In the in the beginning, I was telling them, "I was like, I don't want to be a billing company. I was like, I want. I'm a consultant. I'm a healthcare consultant." And they would ask me like, "What are you consulting about?" And I had no answer for that. I was like, "Healthcare. <laughs> That's what I'm consulting." About. <laughs> so, um, so it's so I had to start with billing, but then that kind of became. Uh, bread and butter for for me, you know, with for CodeWrite, my company. So primarily for CodeWrite, it's been uh, we've been in business for since 2015, and uh, primarily a billing company. We bill for a lot of specialties and uh, do a lot of consulting for them. You know, education for providers, education for uh, practices, for staff. We do a lot of uh, 
we do a lot of uh, auditing, chart reviews, things like that. We educate the doctors about, you know, coding guidelines, LCDs. So pretty much kind of a one-stop shop uh, for mm -hmm. small doctor practice, uh, small medical practices. I feel that a lot of the big practices and big groups, they have a lot of people already lined up um, in their, on their staff that yes. do a lot of, they, that support them and have all those roles. Right. But it's that one doctor who's running his practice, you know, in a small town or even in a big city, just a doctor, you know, practicing on his own, who's just been doing, going at it all alone. They need the most support and they need the most help. So they're primarily our clients, you know, one to two doctor's offices, um, different specialties. So that's what we do. And uh, just want to mention that I um, am certified uh, through AHIMA and AAPC. Uh, and I also have a CPMA and a CPCO. And hopefully I'll get a CPB this year if I'm motivated enough. I'm not sure. <laughs> Let's see. So, yep, that's me. So that's awesome. So your story, this is the first time I'm actually hearing, you know, about your story. You are one of those people like many of us. We never intended to go this direction. We never intended to be in this profession. That seems to be such a common story that I hear from people that I've had on the podcast. Also, just people that I talk to in the industry where we kind of ended up falling into the medical profession, stumbling into it. And I always tell people it is the best thing that ever could have happened to me. I've had such an amazing you know, career in healthcare. You know, my audience knows I've been in healthcare 30 years. It still shocks me to say that. I, I can't believe that I've been working in it for 30 years. Um, and there's definitely a need for what you're doing with those smaller practices for sure. Um, I'm kind of sad to see, you know, the trend in the industry where we have so many small practices or solo practitioners actually selling out and going to work for the larger systems. And that, that makes me sad to see that because I feel that we still need to have access to practitioners who are outside of those large corporate settings. I think that there's definitely an advantage to it. So I'm glad that they have you. Um, for that support and you're filling that need. So thank you so much. So next I have Tony L. Holmes back again. She was on the podcast. She was my first guest on my podcast when I started inviting guests. And um, we've had discussions about this book and I know it's something that she feels very passionate about. So I invited her onto the podcast as well. So Tony, for those who are maybe tuning into the podcast for the first time, haven't heard you here, or haven't listened to you on your Alpha Coding podcast, can you please share a little bit about your background with the audience? Sure. And thank you so much, Stacey, for inviting me back. I'm super excited um, to be here with you and Rosemeen to talk about this incredible book. It really was such an eye-opening book for, for myself. Um, but just to give a little bit of background, so I'm an internationally known speaker and recognized subject matter expert in revenue cycle management. My company, Alpha Coding Experts, um, we specialize in the business of medicine. So we really uh, position ourselves as advisors um, to physician practices. Uh, we like to keep physician practices independent. Like you guys were just saying, there's just so much that happens um, systematically to the healthcare system when we see these hospitals and hospital systems getting bigger and bigger and gobbling up these private practices. So I'm very passionate about that. Um, we do obviously um, the standard business of medicine stuff, coding compliance audits, managed care contract negotiations. 
Um, and then I spend a lot of my time as an expert witness. So I deal heavily with um, issues related to price transparency um, and combating inflated medical bills, which is a lot of what we're going to discuss today. So I'm super excited and, and I, I think that this is going to be uh, such valuable content. And I, I know that everybody's going to walk away with just feeling like they got something great out of this. Yeah, I think we'll do good at stirring people up during <laughs> this podcast for sure when we get into some of these major issues in healthcare. So for me, what you know, I read this book. There were a lot of things that I read that I already knew based on my experience in the industry. And then there were other things that I learned that were brand new that I really was not that knowledgeable about. So it reinforced things that I already knew. And then it introduced me to some new shocking things, in my opinion, about the healthcare industry. But my like main takeaway, if I had to sum up this book in one sentence, this is how I would personally sum up what the book conveys, that the healthcare industry is over-testing, over-treating, over-prescribing, and over-charging. Those were the four main points um, from, reading, from reading the book. So with that said, um, I want to ask each of you, you know, what is what did you find the most shocking? thing in the book. There were so many, but what really jumped out at you? And we'll start with Rosemeen and then we'll jump over to Tony. Um, I believe the most shocking thing for me was the, the hospital in Carlsbad, New Mexico. That yes. um, it's a small town and this hospital that is supposed to be non, not for profit was actually suing patients who were not able to pay their bills and then um, getting the judge to rule against them and garnishing their wa wages. I didn't really think before this that that could happen. Like, you know, your medical bills could be, you know, your medical bills are have the ability to get your wages garnished. I, I did not know that that was happening. And when Dr. Um, McCary was, was there on the ground and he was talking to the townspeople and he was talking to everybody, it seemed like every household in that town, somebody was sued by the hospital, somebody or yes. another. And and what I found funny, and it's not funny, but it was kind of funny that even the judge had been sued by the hospital. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. So I'm like, so the judge was also like, hey, I've been sued too by this hospital. <laughs> but what Dr. McCary learned was that they were not sending, when they were submitting this bill in the court, they were not itemizing things as you know and the, the prices were not on there it's just like okay this is the this is what the hospital billed this is what outs what is outstanding and the patient is that is defaulting on their payments so that's yes, why we were actually blacking out the prices intentionally exactly. In yes exactly so that was the most shocking for me yes yeah i think that was you there's always the possibility you know that in theory somebody can get sued and can get wages garnished. But I, I was shocked that it was on such a wide scale that so many patients were having this experience. Even people who worked at the hospital who were patients had this, you know, done to them. And that was pretty stunning to me that they went after their own employees who I think there was one woman in housekeeping who got her wages garnished. If I remember, there were so many stories in the book. I think that was part of that story. And that was just stunning, you know, to me, 
um, you know, with that. So yeah, again, I, I was just shocked by that on such a wide scale that they were doing that to the patients. So Tony, what did you find to be the most shocking? We could probably go through multiple things that were shocking for each of us, but what do you think was the most shocking? Yeah, there were just so many. I love Dr. McCary's book. I mean, he's such a trailblazer in the industry. He's a professor, he's a surgeon. And so like he's, he's challenging the establishment, which is exactly what it's going to take on a large scale to disrupt this very broken system. Absolutely. So I think the thing that really surprised me the most, and it wasn't surprising because again, as you work in this industry, you you just kind of know things. Um, So I just had a baby um, in the last, uh, actually my baby's almost nine months old, which is crazy. Um, So the section where they talk about the OBGYNs and how they're scheduling C-sections unnecessarily, I think is just really shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that the patient's care and the patient's outcomes and like all of the things associated with that patient are an afterthought to some of these providers that are just thinking about like making, you know, the afternoon tea time for golf. And it's like, wow, like physicians, providers are uh, fiduciaries, right? Like they are entrusted by patients to take care of them when they're most vulnerable. So to see not only this exploitation from like a scheduling and a convenience standpoint, but also to know that C-sections are reimbursed at a higher rate than vaginal deliveries and being in a position, like I said, I just had a baby, um, kind of seeing things and how they're done and And it's really like, uh, it's like a, they're trying to push people through. It's like this cart system and and they want to get rid of people and they want to get them out of these beds. And so what happens is, at least from my experience as a patient, um, you know, they're pumping you with like Pitocin and all of these drugs that are not necessary and doing all of these interventions to try to get you out of that bed so they can fill that bed with somebody else. And that's just disturbing on so many levels. Yeah, absolutely. So I, re- I recall the C-section, you know, stories as well. I think there were two separate doctors that were discussed in that. The one is referred to as Dr. Dinner in the book because he was scheduling his C-sections um, on in the afternoon because he didn't want his dinner disturbed with deliveries. And then, so I think it was around 2.15 in the afternoon would kind of be his like cutoff there, you know, and then he'd schedule the patient with a C-section. And then I think it was a different doctor who he was doing C-sections on Friday. He had a very high C-section rate on Friday. And they found out when they dug into that, that he didn't want his weekend plans interrupted. And that's why he had the high rate over on on the C-sections there on Friday. And those were identified through data analysis. One of the things that, you know, Dr. McCary talks about in the book is looking for those outliers, looking at peer-to-peer data and trying to not, not go in and penalize these physicians with these outlier patterns, but educate them, like use that data as a means of education, which we already kind of do that. I mean, all of us are in the coding space. We do coding consulting and we all know about the bell curves and we know about data analysis. And when I was reading that particular chapter, I kind of had to laugh and think, you know, Dr. McCary, I think you should have talked to some medical coders here because 
medical coders, we see your outliers firsthand before we ever look at a bell curve or anybody has given us any data. Um, you know, if you're one of those coders out there listening who you're sitting in a hospital, let's say, and so you are coding cases for a bunch of doctors on a daily basis, you learn the behavior patterns of all the different doctors. You learn the documentation patterns of the doctors. You see that certain doctors, you know, like Dr. A will perform this type of procedure this way the majority of the time. Dr. B may do it a little bit differently, you know, the majority of the time. And so you see those variations there. And I feel like you have frontline people that sometimes can identify issues before they would ever be found somewhere else. And I don't feel that coders are given their due when it comes to the clinical knowledge that we actually gain over the years. And just again, seeing such a broad range of procedures and from multiple physicians, we have a very unique perspective in that we do have the ability to identify those patterns. So Rosemeen, what are your, what are your thoughts on that and tapping into the medical coders um, to assist in finding some of these abnormal patterns? Like surely a coder could have picked up on Dr. Dinner or the Friday C-section guy, I would think. <laughs> Absolutely. As coders, we see so many things and there's so many red flags and flashes that are there, you know, signals and signs. Sometimes, you know, Stacey, our hands are tied as well. And, um, yes. you know, as independent coders, of course, you know, we have that leeway and the ability to guide a doctor who's pro pro probably our client who's paying us to give him the advice and give him. But the coders who are actually working for the doctors who are the employees they're sometimes, you know, have to do things uh, to save their jobs, you know, to, yes. to stay employed in that company. And it's not necessarily the doctor. I'm not blaming, putting all the blame mm -hmm. on the doctors here. It's the management. It's, 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 it's the, you know, the CEO, CIO, whoever, office manager that's, that's telling the, and I've actually read something on a APC Facebook forum the other day, you know, somebody wrote something that the office manager brought this coder in and said you're not to change anything you're not to give the doctor any advice on any of the coding even if it you know jumps out at you that something is wrong here you're not to say anything you're not to approach the doctor so those are the things that as coders that's concerning to us that there's so many other middlemen in here that are putting you know barricades or putting just a distance between the doctor and the coders who can we really work together to to have a more efficient system yeah, definitely. I think that comes back to just the culture of an organization. And that really starts at the top. And I've worked at a lot of different places and with a lot of different people, and I've seen a lot of different things. And I've been in settings where the physicians are catered to, and no one wants to upset the physicians because if the physicians get upset, they make all kinds of threats, they will go somewhere else. And I feel like in some situations, the physicians are holding facilities hostage in some ways. So that's a little bit of an issue. Um, but then there are also other organizations where the culture is a little bit different and they really are focused on quality and doing the right thing, you know, for, for patients and, and keeping a handle on things. So, but I get that it definitely comes from the top down and I have seen some organizations that are run, you know, wonderfully, um, as a consultant, you get to see, I get to see a lot of different settings as a consultant, as you all do as well. And it's very interesting how from organization to organization, the culture is so 
different and how communication is so different. And in some organizations, coders are just there, like you said, with that one example of the post, this is your job. We're telling you this is what you're going to do. And don't ask us any questions. This is the expectation where other places will empower their coders or other employees to have input into the process, to give feedback, to make things better. So in, in the context of, so let's assume when I open up the question to Tony, then let's assume we're in an organization that welcomes feedback, then how, how do you see like a medical coder, you know, fitting in, into this process and, and helping out rather than relying on the data analysis? Obviously we can do that. We can look at data analysis, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think data is king, right? And the amount of data that we have access to now is significantly greater than the data that we had five years ago, right? Technology has changed. Um, so I think what you guys both said about the culture and the um, the champion, the championing of corporate compliance and the importance of it is is really important, but there's a disparity between organizations and their emphasis on that. So um, I'll tell you a story. So I had a um, hospital system that I was working with and they had this general surgeon and this general surgeon, I mean, this guy was amazing. Like he was just like, his numbers were off the charts, right? Like his RVU numbers were way outside of what would be like normal. So they asked me to come in and shadow him and see what was going on and do an audit and kind of figure out, okay, is he like really just, he has no life and he's always at the hospital or like what's <laughs> going on. And so this guy was seasoned. He had been a surgeon for like 25 years. So he, he, he knew his stuff. He knew how to be efficient. He knew how to leverage non-physician practitioners to help him be um, more efficient, more productive. So in shadowing him, I saw many, many things come to light. One of which was the reason why his numbers were off the chart is because he was taking pretty much every case from the ER, even when he wasn't on call. Like he would call and say, hey, are there any cases? Uh, <laughs> he was quite ambitious. <laughs> he was very much a workaholic. So he would just like show up to the ER and be like, hey, do you guys have any cases for me? And so... He was very excited about working, but um, what he didn't realize is that all of his evaluation and management services were being billed under him and not under his three PAs that were seeing patients in the hospital and in clinic. So obviously that's going to um, you know, impact the data and you're gonna see way higher RVUs than, than um, a normal provider because he's basically capturing the work of like four providers. <laughs> so right. th these are the kinds of things, like you said, coders can, can identify. But I also think we get a bad rap because a lot of doctors, a lot of administrators kind of point the finger at us and make, make it seem like we're the ones that are contributing to this, you know, ridiculous price model and all of the things that happen because we're the ones that put the charges in, right? We're the ones that are accounting for the work that's being done. And I think your point about, hey, come down to um, the, the weeds, the trenches and see what we can offer you in terms of perspective and insight, because there's just so much there. So I think 
coding professionals really, and I've said this before, need to understand their value. You are not there to just do data entry. You're not there to just like push out claims and meet quotas and productivity. What you're doing has an influence and an impact on the healthcare system at large, budgets, policies. We're seeing it right now with, with COVID-19 and all of the uh, variants and the data capture that goes into that. So data is king, data is powerful. Um, and I think coders have to understand how valuable they are in the big picture. Now, definitely, you know, coder, coders again are a wealth of knowledge. And I feel that I try to communicate to providers that, especially physicians, like coder, coders should be your best friends. They're the ones that are, you know, are invaluable to you in communicating with you. I feel that sometimes that physicians, and I felt this even in the consulting role, when you're hired by a, an organization and then you're dealing with physicians, it's almost like you're looked at as like the enemy and you're telling them everything that they can't be doing and what they shouldn't be doing and everything that they're doing wrong. And it's like, don't shoot the messenger. I actually am here you know, to help you. And so I think that's part of the problem where sometimes the doctors just feel like, oh, the coders are nagging me again. What more do you want from me? You need more documentation. I already said everything I did in the report. Why are you bothering me? Um, for this, but they, they can be such a great asset. So while we're kind of on this topic of that, the, you know, data, that's kind of what we were talking about. We got a little bit off on that, but in the one chapter of the book where he was talking about doing the data analysis and looking for outliers, there were actually some things that he had identified in the data analysis that he was doing for the different specialties that I actually found, you know, kind of interesting. And so I didn't, you know, jot down some notes about that. And one thing that they picked up on when they were looking at the gastrointestinal doctors is that there are some that are taking, when they're doing the procedures and they're going in at both ends, they're scoping you at both ends. They're doing one on one day and one on the other day. They're splitting the procedures when they shouldn't be doing that. And I'm like, how unpleasant for the patient. I'm like, I don't want to get scoped like through any orifice in my body if you're going to do it. Get it over with in one day. Don't bring me back a second day and make me go through prep again. <laughs> that was just like a horrible thing to think about from the patient perspective. And then he also found in this data analysis they did that mitral valves, that half of them can be repaired, about half can be repaired, but you have some doctors that replace them in 100% of their patients that they don't do the valve repairs. That was stunning to me. Um, and then something that's kind of, you know, near and dear to what I do with the interventional radiology is he talked about the patients with, you know, the claudication. If anybody who does interventional radiology coding or any vascular, you will see the magic words, lifestyle limiting claudication. That is what the doctors are going to put in their reports. And then you have your medical necessity for doing the procedure. And they found that the procedure rates for patients with claudication should actually be less than 10% which I found very shocking um, when they were doing the data analysis. I'm like, well, I would beg to differ. That's definitely not what's happening in practice. Um, given that this is what I look at all the time from all of my clients that I'm thinking it's probably going to be um, higher than 10%. And then something else he discussed in the same chapter was he touched briefly on Medicare quality measures. This is something that um, Dr. McCary didn't explore in depth, and I wish he would have gotten into it a little bit more because we have all of these Medicare quality measures that we've been reporting on for years and years and years. And the question is, what value are we really gaining from a lot of these quality measures? That's the question. 
And he pointed out that with a lot of quality measures, they're not necessarily focused on whether or not a service was necessary to begin with. They may be focused on outcomes to a certain degree, but did the patient even need the procedure? And then he talked about briefly when a quality measure for Medicare is proposed that you have to, it has to be supported with multiple published articles. It has to be evidence-based. There have to be trials. And there are just certain things that you can't have a trial on that aren't going to be evidence-based because you're not going to test on patients, you know, in, in certain manners to arrive at that. So he was, you know, touching a little bit on how, although we have these quality measures, what is really the value of them? Are we really measuring quality of patient care through all these measures that we have? So I'll let both of you comment on the current quality measure reporting and your thoughts on that in the context of what he was sharing. So I'll go back to Rose Mean for this one first. Okay, I will say one thing that the requirements for quality measurement, it's a pain for doctors. They don't like it because they think it's, it's more work for them yes. um, to be able to, um, I know the EMR systems and the practice management systems do um, capture a lot of that data, but mm -hmm. it is it is a little bit of a pain. But like you said, it's it's more to determine the, the medical necessity and not the outcome. So where is this going? You know, is this changing anything? Is this just something that this, the data is being collected? Is it being analyzed? Is it being, you know, is it being processed? What is actually happening with this data? Yes, it's, it's, it was rolled out to in incentivize the physicians. Okay, if you report in certain quality measures, you will get, you know, incentives uh, for two years. I believe it was 2019 um, that they were starting to penalize them. I could be wrong. But I, I do feel that quality measures are great, but I want to see, I want to see what is being done about it. Not just, it's not, shouldn't be just a data collection exercise. That's what I think. Yeah, right. There, if you look at the quality measures, there are they're not all for the same purpose, I guess. When you look at the quality measures, um, like for example, some of the ones that you see, like for radiology, that is based on like radiation exposure, and that's why they're reporting on like radiation exposure. Which I get that, but why? I kind of think, why in the heck is that tied to payment and getting any type of extra incentive? Like, what's the true? value in that as far as like a patient like outcome I guess or like medical necessity like bigger picture I'm not saying that we can't look at that but if you're reporting on measures like that and that's what's getting you extra payment what have we really accomplished with a measure such as that so Tony what are your thoughts on the quality measures and how it currently is working I think um, quality reporting on its face is a very good idea, right? The implementation has been very poor. I think CMS has missed the mark uh, because the vast majority of providers are still on fee-for-service payments, right? The way to get providers um, incentivized and aligned is to hit them in their pockets, right? So until those measures are hitting them more significantly than I think it's what 9% now, um, then that's not, we're not going to see that level of change until it's like 20, 30, 40%. And then we start to see more alternative payment models. So like right now we've got HEDIS, we, we had PQRS, meaningful use, like stage 
50. I don't even know how many stages now. Like, it's just ridiculous. And these were all measures to try to get buy-in into this um, quality reporting uh, program, right? To try to get people incentivized to adopt EHRs to tie quality to um, to costs, right? So we're seeing that now where if you're a high cost provider, um, the idea is eventually you're going to have to pay higher penalties because the idea is that you're going to reduce costs by creating more effective care models. So like in, in, in primary care, right? We're seeing the patient-centered medical home model. And for providers that are on alternative payment models, that do this well, it's actually very lucrative. Yes, uh, the, the thing about physicians, they know how to do this stuff. They know for the most part how to take care of patients and to save money doing it, which is why you see physician-led ACOs that are very, very mm -hmm. successful. Um, so until fee-for-service um, goes away or is in the minority, I don't think quality reporting is going to be taken seriously. Right now, it's just a headache, right? Hospitals mm -hmm. can deal with it. They have the infrastructure, they have the operational support, but these small practices, they don't have that. So they look at it like it's a burden. Oh, this is a box we have to check to make sure we don't get penalized. So I think we've missed the mark and we've got a really correct course and, and sorry bring it back to um, tying quality reporting to their reimbursement. Yeah, it's the quality journey has been kind of interesting. I mean, in the specialty that I work in, there are not a ton of measures, so I am not deeply engrossed in it. But I feel like with anything that the government sticks its hand into, they create a lot of work. <laughs> and I don't really know. I feel like there's good intentions in a lot of things that are implemented for changes in the Medicare program and in the healthcare industry, but then we always have unintended consequences of what we're implementing or we're not getting the full benefit um, that we thought we would when things are like implemented. So you mentioned alternative payment models and you know a lot of those are popping up out there. And so coming back to the book for a moment, there was one chapter where Dr. McCary talked about a company called Iora Health. I think it's pronounced Iora. It's I-O-R-A. And this is one of those concepts of an alternative model where you actually have, you're hired by an employer or an insurance company. This is a provider that they would hire um, to care for a particular patient population. And then they're given a certain amount of money per patient to manage that patient. And the Iora model was like super cool when I read this. I'm like, this is neat. I'm like, I think a lot of medical practices should function like this. And just for the audience to give you a brief summary of, of how this worked, they, when you were a patient of Iora, they assigned each person a doctor, and then you also got a health coach. And then that health coach would actually be at each doctor appointment with you, which I feel is invaluable to have another person there with the patient who understands the clinical aspects, you know, of care, um, you know, myself having to communicate with my parents about their health care, having conversations with physicians, kind of being that translator or intermediary. I, I feel for people who during the pandemic, when they were going into the hospital or going to healthcare providers, no one was allowed to go anywhere with you. You were in there on your own. And I think about the breakdown in communication 
that occurs in those situations when you don't have another person there to advocate for you and ask questions when you can and be that other set of eyes and ears, which I think is huge. But so they have this coach that's at every appointment with you. The coach then reviews everything from that doctor appointment with the patient. And then the coaches are in charge of calling the patients to check up on them. They help coordinate their other appointments with other specialists. Um, they also will do home visits if they need to. They arrange for them to have rides to their medical appointments, not just at their clinic, but to other specialists, other um, you know, places that they have to go. They offer classes for patients, cooking classes, yoga classes, like wellness classes. They can come to the center and they can participate in those. And so they're really focused on, you know, understanding also their patients, any barriers to care, any struggles that the patients are having. So they're not just looking at clinically what's going on with the patient, but we talk a lot now about the social determinants of health. That's like a big thing now in healthcare and how that affects outcomes for patients. And so a model like this really helps in that area for maybe those people who are underserved normally now have access to these additional resources and patients who are in this type of model, I mean, their outcomes are far better than any fee for service model that you're going to see like anywhere. I mean, if you dig into the details behind all of this, they have better outcomes. But what's crazy about this is that providers that are following this model, like you said, Tony, there's money to be made in it. They are profitable. You know, I think on its face, people feel, how could you possibly make money when you're paid a fixed rate per patient? Well, if you're keeping the patients healthy and you're monitoring the patients properly and they're getting what they need, you're keeping them out of the hospital and you're keeping them as healthy as you possibly can. There is the cost savings right there. Um, with those patients. So I just really like that Iora model that they had. And like I said, I'd love to have something like that for myself personally, um, you know, to kind of be there, the health coach to like keep you on track and be there. I'm like game nights. I'll go for game nights to the community room. If I'm bored, you know, there's social activities. I could use a social club to go to. And the reason why they do that and they have the community room and the cooking classes and they have the game nights is because they realize the mental health of patients, their mental health, the socialization is very important to patients that they need to be around other people and not everyone has that. So I was just so impressed with that particular model that they have there. So, okay, so we've, oh gosh, I'm looking at my list and we've got so many things that we wanted to talk about in, in the book here. So one thing I think I want to talk about before we jump over into, we're going to talk about pricing and price transparency. We're going to probably spend a good amount of time there. So I think we'll kind of save that for last. Um, I want to talk about one thing that I was kind of surprised about just briefly, and that was about the pharmacy benefit managers and that chapter on prescription drug costs and why prescriptions cost so much money. And what I, what I found eye-opening about this is we hear all the time that it's the prescription drug manufacturers that's so expensive, they're charging these high prices. And while there is some truth to that, there is that aspect, there are these middlemen, these pharmacy benefit managers that are between the, the, you know, the drug manufacturers and the actual pharmacies dispensing the drugs that nobody wants to talk about. And these are the middlemen that are making a ridiculous amount of money off of prescription drugs in this country. And the number that was given in the book 
uh, I had written this down, 266, the prescriptions of 266 million Americans are managed by pharmacy benefit managers. So think about that. If we have 330 million people roughly in the United States, 266 million Americans, it's probably almost everyone on a prescription because you're gonna have some segment of the population that isn't on any prescription. So to me, that was mind blowing. And I'm, I, we don't have time to go into it in detail here as, as to the role of these pharmacy benefit managers and all that they do, but basically they're purchasing the drugs and then they add a fee onto the price of the drugs and then that gets passed along. And so there were just a few examples that I wanted to pull out in, in the book here. So an example, one that they gave in the book where they have what's called the spread between what a pharmacy benefit manager charges versus what they paid. So on Prilosec, um, they will charge to the employer for a Prilosec for a quantity of 30, $70.85. And then the amount that the PBM paid to the pharmacy is actually $0. The pharmacy benefit manager didn't pay anything. And so the question is, well, then why are they charging? What, who, who paid for that? That's because the copay of the patient actually covered the cost of the drug. So in this case, you have that PBM that's making $70.85 off of that prescription when there was no cost to them because the copay actually covered the actual cost of the prescription. And then if you go down the list of some of the other medic medications, there are instances where this pharmacy benefit manager is actually adding $100 $200, you know, on top of what they're paying for a prescription. So this is where we have this huge increase in our prescription drug costs. So there's a lot of finger pointing, I feel like in the industry where people are pointing the finger at the drug companies, they're pointing the finger at the insurance companies, they're like all over here. And no one ever talks about the pharmacy benefit managers. That's something I was not fully aware of until I read the book. I knew I heard the term but I didn't know exactly what it was until I read the book. And what I think is cool, some of you out there might've heard that Mark Cuban has started um, a drug company recently. And he has talked about in some recent interviews about the pharmacy benefit managers and the markup on medications. And he's coming in and he's gonna be disrupting the space by offering prescription drugs, thousands of them. And they are simply going to put a 15% markup on their cost and that's it. And it will be completely transparent. So I'm hopeful that in the future, we will see more companies get into the space and really carve them out. That was one thing that I noticed in the book in all these chapters, you had a lot of abuses going on like with air ambulance companies, that was one. And another chapter, it was health insurance brokers and how they conduct themselves. But then you had people who had been working in those industries who got tired of how the industries were being run and how they were focused on profit. And they stepped out and they created a new way, a fair way, a more transparent way of offering these services and you know, doing business. So there are people out there disrupting the system and offering alternative models for buying health insurance you know, and for other services but they're just not really well known and it's really breaking through all of that noise. Let's face it in this country, medical, anything medical is very political. And we have a lot of lobbyists that are involved when it comes to healthcare. So a lot of times 
their needs and their wants are getting taken care of because money also is being funneled to political candidates, as we all know. I personally feel if we could take that money aspect out of it, the lobbying aspect out of it, a lot of this might be able to fix itself without heavily regulating everything. It seems like we get more and more regulations, but we don't really get a lot of improvement for the regulations that we have. So I did just want to mention um, that. Either one of you want to comment on the PBMs before we move on? Yeah, I mean, I think you're bringing awareness to a big issue, a very complicated issue. I read this book several times and I scratched my head trying to figure out like, what's a PBM and why do they exist? And like, you know, well, yeah, what what's this? the point? Where did they come from to begin with? <laughs> exactly. And how do they get away with this? Like, and, and the, yeah. the landscape is, it's just, it's sad because there's no regulatory oversight um, and demand for transparency for PBMs. So PBMs are the invisible middleman. And I think you hit on this, Stacey, but what they're doing is they're adding what's called a rebate to these prices. And the rebate is basically, so you get your formulary, right? So if you take medication and you have uh, prescription benefits, you'll have like tier one meds, tier two meds, tier three meds. Mm -hmm. So the PBM is making up all of these um, different tiers and they're, they're contracted by the health plan, right? So yes. their, their incentive is to go back to the health plan or the self, uh, insured plan, um, or the unions and, and basically say, Hey, we saved you lots and lots and lots of money, um, by inflating the price of drugs. And so these rebates that are, that right. are collected by the PBM, they're not going to you, they're right. not going to the plant, they're going to the PBM. So that's, I mean, it's just this terrible system that's gotta be disrupted, right? So people like Mark Cuban are, are really trying to cut through the red tape and disrupt this system. We have people on insulin that can't afford insulin. Like this right. is a life-saving medication. So it's just, it's horrible that we have to do these things in our country and and that lobbyists and these big corporations control things that impact everyday Americans. It's, it's just really unfortunate. And I'm hoping that um, the system obviously corrects itself, but because of people like Dr. McCary and like us that are trying to get louder about this issue, that's what it's gonna take to really impact change. Yeah, Rosine, would you like to add to that? PBMs, yes. When I read the book, I was scratching my head. I was like, what is this? You have to read it a few times to actually yes, understand I'm it. still trying to figure it out exactly what it is. <laughs> I've seen like a lot of threads on LinkedIn about PBMs. And I'm, I'm, I was like, okay, what is this? And Dr. McCary is talking about it. And then Stacey, you explained it beautifully as well. Um, and then Tony, you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's, it's these, uh, it's a network, right? It's it's the pharmacies, it's the and they're owned by the health plan. And the health plans are the one with such deep pockets that they're out there in Washington lobbying to these these legislators, these lawmakers. And this is a whole network. So yeah, disrupting it, what Mark Cuban is doing is great. It's honorable. It's a success. And I hope that it goes a long way. And there's other people that join him in this effort. But I do also feel that I'm maybe a little bit of a bubble buster here or pessimist here, but these, these 
have very deep pockets, you know. Um, I do know, I, I, um, I think I follow a physician on LinkedIn. Every time he talks about United Healthcare, he hashtags them as cartel. So <laughs> you guys have come across that. But every time, like, he'll post something about United Healthcare and he'll say cartel about, on that. And, and I'm like, these companies are just so big. How do you, it, it's like it's Goliath, right? You have right. to have not just one David, you got to have like, you know, 100 Davids to, to come together to face this giant. Are you talking about Dr. Howard Green? Is, is that it? I don't know. Um, I don't know. There's a couple of doctors who sound off quite a bit on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, so I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe it's him. I don't know. And you have to ask yourself, though, this with the insurance companies being as large as they are, some of the UHCs of the world, they're probably they're always posting record profits. It seems they do like very well um, for insurers. But th there are things that are known. These are not secret. You have to ask yourself, why do our elected representatives and officials not step in and do something about these issues? This goes back to money. They all somehow, some way, they have very, it's a conflict of interest. It just is, I feel, with these elected officials where they don't step in and do something because, again, we go back to the money that's being poured into it, the lobbying, um, you know, of all of those elected officials. And that brings us to the end of part one of the discussion about the price we pay, what broke American healthcare and how to fix it. Thank you, Rosemine and Tony, for sharing your thoughts on this important topic. To all of my listeners, I highly recommend you pick up a copy of Dr. McCary's book if you have not already read it. It truly is a must read. If you have already read the book, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. You can send an email to podcast at radrx.com. That's podcast at radrx.com. Or you can share your comments with me on LinkedIn. As always, I want to thank all of my listeners. If you are loving the podcast and listen on Apple, please take a moment to give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a review. And of course, share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have feedback you'd like to share in an episode or topic suggestions, please send an email to podcast at radrx.com. Thanks again for tuning in and have an amazing week. Thank you for listening to Who Cares What Stacy Says. You can connect with Stacy on social media. You can find her business page for Rad RX on Facebook, and you can connect with her personally on LinkedIn. Don't forget to check out the online training courses offered by Rad RX: Cracking the IR Code, Mastering Interventional Radiology and Cardiology Online Training, or Cracking the Diagnostic Radiology Code Online Training. Thanks again for tuning in to Who Cares What Stacy Says a podcast providing insights and advice on how to take your medical coding career to the next level.